Good evening. Welcome to the Snake River Lib. It's Wednesday. It's the 5th of May. So, you know, the revenge of the 5th, I guess. Star Wars continuing on TBS. That's all cool. Um, welcome to the Snake River Lib podcast. Um, Wednesday edition. Got a couple things for you. Then we're going to... Uh, a little bit of editorializing, which I want to do at times. First, I'd like to begin by talking about juror number, I believe it's 52, of the, the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis. Um, here's a juror, juror who um, allegedly said that he had no connection to uh, any kind of group or protest or activity in regards to George Floyd or or Black Lives Matter, and yet he is at a protest in Washington, D.C. Yes, it was in regards to Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on the Mall, but George Floyd's family spoke at that, at that event as well. And uh, he was there wearing a shirt saying, get your knee off my neck or something like that. Um Wouldn't it be interesting to, or ironic, maybe, that the trial is reversed and a new trial is needed because of a juror who was biased? What a shock that is. And when he gave an interview, which this was all his doing, nobody, you know, this was not something that, that, uh, um, this is not somebody that was a reluctant speaker. He uh, he came out and did an interview, and he talked about how in in the jurors' room that they talked about the need for justice for um, you know with blacks and etc. Now, here's the thing. It would be very racist of me to judge all blacks by the actions of some thug, would it not? Um, I would say, well, he was just acting out for whatever reason. And they would be right about that, by the way. That would not be acceptable. That's not acceptable actions, um, as far as uh, as far as judging people. You don't judge a whole race by an individual, unless you're the left. You judge an individual. And in the case of the Chauvin trial, white race was not on trial. Justice for all black injustices was not in trial. It was the case of a policeman who appeared to use excessive force and ultimately killed a man. This was a case that was, you had unity, if you will, in the nation. There was no one excusing what Chauvin did. 
But they couldn't leave it there. And they had to make it about everybody else. And so whenever you do that, all at once, now you have to start examining other things. You have to start examining that excessive force and the fact that, that George Floyd was, was uh, pumped up uh, on drugs, potentially giving him a lot more strength than, than what uh, normally somebody would have or an inability to feel pain like other people. The fact that he was resisting arrest because he was uh, a suspect in a crime. You know, there's this Chris Rock video about how not to get your butt kicked by the police. And it's funny. Um, but fundamentally, it comes down to it. If you look at, there are exceptions, of course. I mean, the fact is we have too many laws, too many opportunities for police to get involved with citizens uh, when no one has been harmed. But we had this situation here that all the country was unified in saying that this police officer used excessive force, but they turned it around and made it a summer of insurrection, if you will. I mean, what else do you call assaulting a police station and taking it over? Would this not fit the definition? Uh, except for that they were violent, not just a mass of bodies. I mean, remember, the only person killed in the Capitol riots on January 6th was a protester. And she was killed by a cop who is nameless and is not facing any charges. She was unarmed. Ashley Babbitt, I believe her name was. But she was white, so who cares? Except for now, you, you put the judge in an impossible position. Because now he has to weigh justice, which demands a new trial. Against setting the nation on fire and possibly putting his own life at risk. Because this is what we've come to in the United States. This victimology, this this teaching that no matter how you act, if you're white, you're racist. It just upsets me a lot, all of that that's going on. Moving on to other things. Um, by the way, thank you for listening. Um... I wanted to talk about, I've been talking about the last couple times, property rights and how important they are in our society. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about why you really have no property rights. Um, we've mentioned briefly the Civil Rights Act uh, and its impact on businesses. Um, 
you know, the bottom line should be a private business owner should be able to hire whomever they want and should be able to control who comes into their establishment and who doesn't. I mean, that should be that simple. It's not, it's a violation of the civil rights act. If you do that, if you don't hire somebody because they're not of your faith, that's something that somebody can take you to court for. You know, of course, besides age, uh, sex, uh, or gender, race, ethnicity, etc. I mean, this is why Barry Goldwater, um, one of the greatest friends of, uh, well, he was a libertarian, even though he was a Republican, is an Arizona Republican back in the day, which meant that you were libertarian like so many of the Western states, was against the Civil Rights Bill for that very reason, that it dictated policy, which is really unconstitutional. It's a violation of your right to use your property as you wish. But I want to talk to you about a case um, because this case is going to factor, I think, in the future. Um, it's a Supreme Court case precedent. Uh, it's Wickard versus Filburn. It was uh, decided, argued, and um, the decision was rendered in 1942, uh, November of 1942. And here's what happened. I want to just read right out just a little snippet of it. Philburn was a small farmer in Ohio who harvested nearly 12 acres of wheat above his allotment under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. Philburn was penalized under the act. He argued that the extra wheat that he had produced in violation of the law had been used for his own use and thus had no effect on interstate commerce since it never had been on the market. In his view, this meant that he had not violated the law because the additional wheat was not subject to regulation under the Commerce Clause. And so the question of the case was, did the act um, violate the Commerce Clause? Now, um, when it comes down to, you have to remember the Supreme Court, by the way, uh, ruled unanimously for the Department of Agriculture that they can, via the Commerce Clause, regulate what you do on your property. As long as they can figure out a way to tie it into something else, they can do that. So say that there, say you have a food storage or other sort of stockpile. You could even take that down to the toilet paper level, right? Well, if you have it and you have more than what some board determines you need under this opinion, They can come and take it from you. The farmer was just raising wheat for his own use above what he was raising otherwise. 
But because that has an impact on commerce, supposedly. Because since he's raising wheat for himself, he does not have to go and buy it elsewhere. This Supreme Court, of course, is the same Supreme Court that was cowed by, by the, the threat of court packing by FDR when he was when the court was ruling all of his New Deal unconstitutional. Um, so he threatened to pack the court, and they got the message loud and clear. Another instance of democracy uh, infiltrating another branch of government. So what do you think about that? I mean, th just think about that. Has, what he was doing had nothing to do with interstate commerce whatsoever. And yet, the court ruled that Congress could do it. Nothing is safe. I'm going to take a break, and then I've got something pretty big on the other side. So we'll be right back. And we're back. But first, a question. If you celebrated Cinco de Mayo and you're not Central or South American, um, how do you feel about violating their culture? Just kidding. Um, what I wanted to talk about here, I was walking um, yesterday, and so I've been mulling this over for, um, well, a day and a half, um, about st student loans. You know, we've, we've heard the talk about student loans. Congress wants Biden to forgive $50,000 per person, depending on how much you earn. Um, Biden thinks that he needs Congress to do that. Nobody wants to be the one that actually pulls the trigger. But let me put it, let me, let me throw out some options here and see what you think about this. People enter into a contract with the government in the case of student loans where they promise to pay the student loan back in exchange the, the student receives financial aid for them to go to school and get a degree. So they're essentially buying their degree through their work. I mean, I don't want to dismiss their work in this, okay? But they would not have been able to do it without student loans. So in reality, just like your, your house, right? If you have a mortgage on your house, I have a mortgage on my house. You know, what happens if you don't pay it back? They repossess the property. Or they foreclose on the property, I guess. That's a better way to say it. And to me, why can't they do the same thing? Now, of course, you can't get any money back from it, but you can... I mean, Congress would have to do this, or Biden would have to do it, and there's no way he will. 
But think about this. What would happen if you defaulted on your student loans? I'm not talking about getting a deferral or whatever. I don't remember the terms, but you actually defaulted. You, you were in a payment status, and you just chose not to pay them. If your degree was rescinded, meaning that you no longer had that degree. So we're just going to take this diploma and hold on to it until you start paying for it. But not only that, have a, a reverse sort of credit rating on the institution, the college. This college, you know, make this public knowledge. You know, people should be looking for the best deals, whether it's online or brick and mortar. They, they should be looking for the best deals when it comes to college. And part of that should be this college has X number of graduates who have defaulted and lost their degrees because they're default on student loans. Because that'll send up some warning bells. Of course, in reality, what it is, and this is somebody talking with a political science degree, which in most circumstances qualifies as next to worthless, um, depending on the degree, you know, is your likelihood of getting a job. You know, my favorite that I always use is French medieval poetry. Well, outside of academia, what kind of positions are there for somebody with a degree in French medieval poetry? And I'm not picking on the French or the poets. You know, I'm sure that they were very fine. I don't like poetry, by the way, but that's all right. But the question is this. You shift that burden onto the American taxpayer. Makes it so that you essentially stole that degree. And that's the case whether there's student loan forgiveness. You know, I mean, there's many, you know, if you're teaching or working with government, working for government or such, there are ways to have your loan paid off, so to speak, um, over a period of time. But just forgiveness just because... I mean, you're putting that burden on somebody, on people who may have not had the opportunity, or maybe they didn't want to go into debt. And so they went to learn a trade instead. And they're working, and they're earning some money, but now they've got this added burden. You see, we talk about taxation being theft here at the Lib quite a bit. I think I end pretty much every episode talking about that. But I want to talk about another kind of theft. I mean, the secret tax, of course, is inflation, 
right? As they spend and spend and spend, more money's flooded in. You know, uh, it causes a scarcity of goods because the the price of goods to rise. And we're seeing that all over the place today, whether it's houses, whether it's building materials, whether, you know, food products, everything's going up, you know. And that in and of itself is a tax. And it's a tax on people who can least afford it, um, the poor and the middle class, what middle class there is left in this country. It's a tax that, that nobody had to go in Congress and vote for a tax increase. All they had to do was appropriate more money and have the Federal Reserve start printing. You know, I mean, we're in for hyperinflation. The question isn't if, it's a question of when. And once interest rates rise... And debt servicing becomes a greater and greater part of the federal debt, federal budget. You're going to see all sorts of things that are crowded out. Of course, those items will depend on on which parties in power. But they're going to have to at somewhere. There's going to be a reckoning. And even this borrowing, you know, you, you know, we're talking about the inflation today, but what about the debt being put on people who are not even born? We're stealing from their livelihood today. I mean, we're stealing today from their livelihood of tomorrow. You know, the, the official people say that we're somewhere around $30 trillion in debt. But that is not an inaccurate statement. When you factor in the unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare, um, most people estimate that we're well over $100 trillion on the national debt when you factor in those obligations. By spending today, we are stealing. And they don't even have a choice to resist the gun. They can't, they can't, they have no say. In what we're doing today. None whatsoever. Because this will affect generations that are not even born. And our population growth rate is not even at a maintained level were it not for immigrant immigrants coming in. When Social Security started, there was uh, 17 workers for every person on Social Security. Now there's between three and two workers that are supporting an individual on Social Security. 
Think about that when you open up your next check pay, pay stub and wonder where 13% of your check is going. Not income tax. You got to work harder. I know it's been kind of a somber one on the podcast, hasn't it? I apologize for that to a certain extent, except for that these are times that are are not happy-go-lucky. You have you have a president, whether it's him or whether it's Valerie Jarrett or Barack Obama, that's pulling the strings behind him. You have a president that is systematically destroying this country. Destroying everything of value in it. And yet he swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. As did Congress. And look what they're doing. They're doing nothing except for passing stupid bills that are only going to make things worse. And the thing is, they know that. They know the harm that they are doing, and they just don't care. I've often said it, I'll say it again. We deserve the government that we have. There's only one thing that can stop Washington now. And it's the Convention of States that's being passed. They're working furiously in Kansas to try to uh, force it through. Um, many people are, are aghast that this would happen, but in this, the Convention of States needs to happen. We need to have reasonable people go and meet together and work on a way to clamp down the federal government. It's out of control. The Leviathan is so big that nobody can control it. The president can't. Congress can't. It's taken a life of its own. Every hint of inflation causes the market to blink. And there's more than hints. Which brings us back to uh, good old Wickard versus Filburn. At the end of the day, we come back and what property is yours? And how may you use your property as you wish? Hmm. Not so sure about that. It's the Snake River Lib. Be of good cheer. 
pretty soon the pendulum is going to swing the other way. Hopefully, if it does, that we have somebody reasonable, somebody who is forceful in their opinions, but yet reasonable enough in tone and manner to fix some of these problems. It's a Snake River Lib spending theft too, by the way.